welcome to the Blackbird Film Podcast. I'm Madison. And I'm Mitch. Today we have another special guest with us. He is a director, writer, and producer. His most recent work includes festival award-winning short Holding, a dark comedy about two people who are put on hold by a suicide hotline, and new contender and award winner currently on the film festival circuit, The Take Back, a drama about a gay man who steals from one of his one-night stands in order to cope with his vulnerability. His passion for telling stories from lesser seen perspectives, especially in terms of representing the LGBTQ plus community in unexpected and dynamic ways in shining a spotlight on relationship challenges and misconceptions within the LGBTQ plus community. Today, we will be discussing his 2019 production and Blackbird film submission, The Take Back. Please welcome Jesse D. Turk. Thank you. He's very thorough. So like Maddie said, I am a writer, producer, and director. Originally, I'm from Boston, but I've lived in LA for almost six years. In addition to writing, directing, and producing, I've worked in sort of all areas of the industry because I, I kind of came here not really knowing anyone or anything about it, just that I wanted to do it. And so I've been an assistant at uh, agencies, studios, things like that, and have been making my own stuff along the way. Like you said, Holding was my first project along with my friend, John Zucker, who wrote it and co-directed it with me. We had a lot of uh, good response to that on the festival circuit and then released it. And it has almost 2 million views on YouTube, which has been really exciting. And the take back was an idea that I'd been gestating on for a while in various iterations and had a lot of feedback from friends, which was really great. And yeah, it was sort of this project that really showcased, I guess, my sensibilities as a creator on my own. I tend to veer a little darker, more dramatic, and my upcoming stuff is kind of in that same vein. And like you said, I, I really, I try pretty hard to focus on the LGBT community and specifically on showcasing us in a way that people haven't seen before or doesn't fall into the normal tropes like a coming out story or things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I do think there's space now for things that are just more nuanced and, and make people think and realize that the LGBTQ community is not a monolith. You know, it's it's very diverse and it has flaws and it's human. And I think when you do that, even when you show flawed characters like in The Take Back, you end up getting a richer perspective on who these people are, even if you don't know them. Yeah, I actually had a question kind of regarding you writing more dislikable LGBTQ plus characters and how you go about that in a more like sensitive way to make sure that those characters aren't portrayed as, you know, problematic or go about it in like a more homophobic way. Yeah, I think the main thing for me is it's the same way as writing any character. You still, you have to make the character redeemable in some way. Right? Like in the take back Kobe, who's the lead, yeah, he's stealing it from his one night stands, which is not great, but he has a moral center and he's grappling with something and he's doing it poorly, but he's going to learn something. Right. And I think that's the key is that you avoid problematic areas by allowing characters to make the mistakes they're going to make so we can relate to those mistakes, but ultimately having them learn something, even if they're not perfect, right? The take back doesn't end on a happy ending by any means, but it does end on a note that's saying there's progress, right? There's something moving forward. And I think with all the characters that I create, I wouldn't ever want to make someone who's so perfect that they're our role model. It's just not, I don't know, that's not what I look for. <laughs> I guess I watch something and I and I, I want to relate to someone and, and feel like, oh, okay, they're a little messed up and I can be too and that's okay. Even as a gay person, 
I don't have to be the perfect role model. That's far too much pressure to put on a real person or on a character in a movie. You'll always mess up and that will end up being more problematic. But if you allow the space for that person to be real, and when we're real, we mess up, we make mistakes, whether they're big or small, that's when you can kind of have fun with it and, and relate. I also understand that it's different coming from a writer who is part of the community versus someone who's not and then is writing that unlikable or dislikable character. That's when it can kind of get a little fuzzy and a little problematic in a sense. Mm-hmm. But, um, how? What's your opinion on LGBTQ plus representation in the film industry? I think it depends which letter in the acronym you're referring to and what aspect of those letters. So I think white gay men, myself being one, are probably overrepresented in that regard. But I also think you have to ask by who, like you're saying, right? In terms of being represented in a way where it's by us and for us in in that sense, I think there's a dearth of that. But I think even more than that, you know, for trans folks and intersex people, it's, uh, there's almost nothing, especially by and for uh, those populations. And I think the most important thing is to allow people with those identities to have the space to create their own work for themselves. Not only because it's the right thing to do, but because that's usually the best work. You're letting people create stories that come organically from their own experiences. So the tone and the kind of the intangible stuff that makes something good beyond story and character and things you can manufacture come much more easily and feel much more relatable, even to people who aren't of those identities. And so I think it it behooves people who can fund those things or or make those decisions to enforce or, or at least allow for the space for that kind of content even if it's quote-unquote risky or or something like that it hasn't been done before i think it's important to take those steps yeah i think like you said obviously films and anything in the film industry you know made by and for the lgbtq plus community is you know lacking in a sense yeah especially those uh, people of color and those ideas i think that's even more so you know i i i do try and write from my own experience Mm -hmm. and um you know i have upcoming work that is not about gay men. It focuses on, I have a project focusing on a non-binary person and I have friends who are non-binary and things like that, but I, you know, I can't speak personally from that experience, but I can relate feelings in the queer community onto that experience. And then you consult, right? I think you do the responsible research and, and you, you do your absolute best and then be really open to feedback and try to keep your ego at bay. Yeah, definitely. I was I was curious, since you just said that you like to write from experience, I was kind of curious if, with the take back, have you experienced something like that before? Like uh, someone stealing stuff? Because to, to be honest with you, I've never heard of that being like a thing. But then I was reading the whole like biography of it and I was like, oh wow, I guess it's a, it's a known, known issue. And I, I really didn't know that. So I've never been stolen from. <laughs> not, not, I've... Mugged once, but not stolen from uh, through a one night stand, and I have not stolen from anyone in a, like in that way. But I have felt that feeling that Kobe feels, which is this weird dissonance between you know being physically intimate with someone, and that's very vulnerable, and you don't know them, and we're all just kind of cool with it, and then that moment after where especially if it's late at night or something, you're expected to just sleep over. And I think sleeping is way more vulnerable. You're unconscious. You're spending hours and hours with this person in very close proximity. And like as someone with 
pretty intense anxiety about that kind of stuff, it, it makes you spiral. And that's that feeling of falling that, I, that we refer to in the film. That is something that's personal to me, where you're just sitting there, you cannot fall asleep. There's this random person next to you and you're just like, you just feel the world rushing past you. And I often would just leave, you know, cause it's not, you don't want to not sleep. So I think that that part is true. And I think it's how you cope with that, that defines whether you're doing a good or bad thing. That being said, there are major issues within the LGBTQ community of people stealing from people after one night stands, as well as in the straight community. I don't think it's it's a queer thing. I think it's people taking advantage of situations. And I don't think it's out of like desperation. Maybe sometimes it is, but I think a lot of the time it's, you're trying to gain back some control, right? You're trying to make sense of a thing that you just did, whether or not you feel good about it. It's just sort of like a thing to to hold on to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess another question I would have is what uh, things have you sh- shown a spotlight on in the past? And if you're going to be doing anything um, different in the future? So holding focus more on depression and, and suicidal ideation, it's based on very loosely based on my friend's own experience with calling a suicide hotline and getting put on hold, which is very real and bizarre. So that really focused more on mental health. We worked with, you know, a suicide foundation that um, was actually focused on Ithaca and we both went to Cornell. So it was like a good match. So that, yeah, that was more focused on mental health, uh, which is also super important to me. And I think the take back kind of married mental health with LGBTQ issues in a certain way, even though it wasn't explicit. And in future work, I think it kind of touches on both of those as well. Yeah, I think, you know, my next short film features an LGBTQ person focusing on kind of a, a hole that that person dug for themselves. And then for a feature film that I'm currently writing focuses on a piece of LGBTQ history that hasn't been told yet, as far as I know. And again, that main character is very flawed and grappling with his own identity in a very ethically dubious way. So it's, it's I think there are issues of mental health that are very queer specific. And I think there are issues of mental health that are universal and affect queer people in different ways. And I think those are two different things. And I hope all my projects will explore those things. Yeah. Actually touching on the holding, I watched it. I loved it. It was great. But I actually had a question regarding like how you said you kind of veer towards like drama and writing about and directing more serious topics. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like to bring in that little bit of lightheartedness and humor into those serious topics to almost make it more relatable to viewers and more swallowable almost, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think uh, I think even in the darkest, bleakest movies or TV shows, it's super important to have levity. You don't want to, you know, torture your audience. I, I personally don't think, maybe some directors disagree. <laughs> Holding was a different breed because it was John and I working together. John is a comedian. He's stand-up. He's got a great, wacky sense of humor. And so that film was really us marrying our sensibilities, which is how it kind of ends up with that balance in tone. That being said, you know, even in the take back, there are these moments where, you know, it's not laugh out loud funny necessarily, but it's these moments where people are awkward and weird. And I I think those are important, not just because they're funny and add levity, but also because that's when characters are relatable, right? We're all weird. We all do things that we think nobody else does. So when you see it on screen and it's like funny and quirky, it you feel a little bit less 
alienated. Speaking of uh, quirky, have you ever done that mind meld thing with somebody? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, my mom used to do it. She didn't call it mind meld. I made that up. But when I was really little, she if I I can't remember if it was like when I was upset or just like not focusing, she would like grab my head and put her forehead right up to me. And we'd have, you know, that thing where your two eyes become one eye and just like kind of, I think it was to calm me down, like right before bed and stuff. She, she would do that. And it was, you know, this like funny kind of intimate moment that's that, that it just feels warm, you know, um, to do it with a stranger is certainly odd. And that was a kind of thing that I wanted to get across that, you know, Kobe's not the only weird one in this movie. Peter is certainly a, a funky guy for his own reasons. So yeah, but it comes from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, yeah, I kind of noticed when Peter and Kobe did that, like initially, it was like kind of like standoffish. And I even thought in my head, I was like, what the, what is going on here? And then you notice that it was kind of calming and he's like, he relaxed into it. And then it's like, okay, yeah, I, I kind of get it. Cause you're trying to like get on the same level as another person that you just met pretty much. And you try to be, like be on the same level and like, just kind of like, equalize everything and, and i thought it was, i thought it was a pretty interesting way to do that visually at least and now that i know what came from like an experience with your mother that's even better <laughs> that's yeah. <awesome. laughs> yeah no i think it's it's kind of this thing where we obviously see kobe taking physical things right mm -hmm. but he points out at the end that peter takes stuff too it's just not physical right peter's not some golden angel he's he he needs certain things for himself to feel like he's in control as well. And it's just emotional vulnerability, which is kind of a lot to ask of a random hookup. You know what I mean? Like generally you're both signing up for the same thing, which is not, I mean, maybe it'll go somewhere, but you're kind of asking for a certain level of distance to kind of break that unspoken code just for your own purposes is, is a, you know, it's not great either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like you were saying before how, you know, one night stands you share this level of physical intimacy but that moment of you know the mind melting that mental vulnerability ends up being more personal than the physical vulnerability yeah, yeah. it's hard to separate yourself from mental or emotional vulnerability yeah. I also liked how you layered a lot of things, especially with like the mind melt, like we just talked about. But also I noticed the the scenery in everyone's like room. Like I noticed that Kobe's room was just white and nothing there. Like it felt like it wasn't even a home. Like there was like nothing to attach himself to something where like someone else and uh, Peter had like their house filled with plants. And like it felt like it was a home and that like it actually someone lived there. Is Was that like a conscious decision that you made? Yeah. So the locations were pretty. Yeah, that was a process for sure. <laughs> the lived-in plant-filled room is mine. Uh, and take lots of pride in my plans. We have even more on new apartment. Yes. They look uh, fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, no, each each room was meant to... The whole film is meant to feel a little claustrophobic, right? The majority of it takes place in small bedrooms. But yeah, each room was meant to have its own personality that reflected things. And if you pay close attention, Kobe's room has pictures of plants, but not real plants. And, you know, Peter's room has real plants. And then, yeah, someone else who is played very graciously by my boyfriend uh, uh, is meant to just feel a little younger, I think. Like, a, you know, he's supposed to have just graduated from Yale. So it's that same, that it gives a certain sense of personality as well, even though it's brief and dark. Yeah, that was, that was a conscious choice. 
Speaking of like back towards LGBTQ representation in film, I was curious because like you said, there's a lot of LGBTQ made by films Mm -hmm. um, lacking in the industry and just everything in general. If you had any favorite films that you kind of relate to or that you found that there was actually genuine good representation in because honestly the last show that i watched that had decent representation was euphoria <laughs> so i'm curious if you had any because you know I'm always, I'm always looking for stuff that actually has genuine good representation in it so some of my favorite sort of all-time favorite lgbtq plus shows and and movies um include Weekend by Andrew Haig. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful movie. Uh, very small and intimate and real. Um, it is really beautifully shot and shows this very specific relationship that doesn't really fit into any um, one kind of slot. And I really like that about the film. Um, I also love But I'm a Cheerleader by Jamie Babbitt. It's super campy, over the top, Natasha Leone at her finest when she was like, super young along with Clea Duvall and it uh it's just one of those queer movies that I can watch over and over again and it's funny but poignant um you also have RuPaul before he was RuPaul um and 120 BPM uh which was a French queer film that came out a couple years ago um about the act out movement in France uh it was just really powerful and upsetting but also very real um and then in terms of TV shows, I love Pose because I think it's like like we were talking about a really good example of people, the sh- people who the show is about also creating the show, right? Queer, trans women of color, both behind the camera and in front of it, telling stories from their perspective, um, but still on the mainstream, which I think is special about it and kind of what Ryan Murphy has done for that show is give them the space to do their own thing, but put them on this sort of platform that everyone can access. And um, the other show I was thinking of was uh, Work in Progress uh, with Abby McEnany, which is on Showtime. And it's just super character driven about this one very neurotic, crazy woman uh, and her issues with um, with herself, really, and thinking that she killed her own therapist just by talking her to death. Uh, but more than that, it's about someone coming to terms with themselves, whether, I mean, she in this case is queer, but, uh, you know, she meets a person who is gender non-binary and falls in love with them. And, uh, it's, it, it approaches queer topics without making it only about the queer topics. And again, it's made by queer people for queer people, but it's also accessible to everyone. So I think all those are big influences because they're all pieces of content that are wholly and completely themselves and because of that have become successful um, either years after or in the moment. Yeah. But yeah, I try and expose myself to that stuff too, especially, you know, as I try and create my own stuff. Since we're in the COVID era, what challenges are you facing with like writing or like producing or directing with your new upcoming projects? So I've written my next short film to be very COVID friendly. It was always going to be kind of the size it is going to be but it, I made it much smaller as well. It'll be shot in one day, two people, one room. I'm not willing to shoot it right now when things are this bad in LA. I was trying to prep it for 
before the end of the year, but that's just not responsible, you know, or necessary. So I think, yeah, I think it comes down to the writing of things, right? Like if you're writing to shoot within, you know, the next year or so, you have a responsibility to be responsible. <laughs> that being said, you know, for things that are larger that I'm not planning on getting done in a year, I'm just in the writing process and, and getting notes from friends who are writers or producers or things like that and, and trying to get interest from people who could fund them and produce them. People are buying things, you know, studios and, and production companies are absolutely buying scripts and ideas and things like that. So that hasn't really slowed down. It's just the production aspect. So I think for my personal work, it's just been a lot of writing mostly and hopefully prepping this next short. Yeah, I mean, my friend and I are also working on a play with music that we were gonna try and do a version of sometime this year or next, but theater's particularly dangerous. So. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we're actually, my friend John and I are also adapting holding into a feature. So we're writing that as well, but again, not planning on shooting it within the next year. So I think, for the most part, it's it's being really cautious. And for anything that I do get to shoot soon, it's thankfully I have enough friends who work on big productions and know all the COVID guidelines that I can adapt those to my smaller stuff. It's a learning process for everyone. It's new to everyone. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. I think it's important to keep making stuff. I also think, you know, people get a little lost in the in how important it is. I think there are more important things and it's important to prioritize and be really conscious of what's going on in the world, even though you really want to make your thing. But I do think it is important, especially given how many jobs come out of big productions, to do what you can to keep them going. I also think, you know, content and good shows and movies are kind of the most, <laughs> the only way we can have fun these days. Right. You know, that's not to say there aren't other ways to have fun, but I think it's it's become more essential than ever to have stuff to escape in or relate to or all that stuff. I, I think it's it's super important for that new content to be created with our current consciousness in mind because that doesn't exist yet. Right. Exactly. What's your favorite or most influential moment of being a filmmaker thus far in your career? Well, so the Take Back and Holding got me into the Ryan Murphy Half Initiative, which is their the Ryan Murphy television production company, which is like this huge empire of a production company, mm -hmm. has a directing program specifically focused for women, people of color, and LGBTQ people. So I got into that and it involves shadowing a director on one of the shows that Ryan produces. So I got to shadow uh, one of Ryan's oldest collaborators. He used to be his editor and is now a director and producer on lots of his shows, Brad Beaker. And I shadowed him on 911 Lone Star, which is like, you know, big Fox show, lots of explosions, things like that. So getting to shadow him on that, especially him as a person, because he's incredibly inclusive and willing to teach even in like super high pressure, big budget situations, getting to learn from him on how to handle those kinds of things was incredible and really important for me and just taught me how much I need to grow and also gave me the confidence to say like, you know, I can 
do this because it's hard to work in a vacuum where you're not really sure where you stand. That was really important. And then similarly, shadowing, shadowing in general has been really influential, but shadowing Elgin James and Pamela Avon on their shows, Mayans and Better Things have both been incredibly important to me for differing reasons. Just seeing people who are really brilliant and at the top of their game and wildly creative, but also genuinely good people and how they work and how they collaborate. Having someone set that example for you at a professional level, I think is super important. And even people in film school don't necessarily get that. It's it's kind of one of those things you have to learn on the job. And, you know, people who work on set, whether you're a PA or anything like that, that get that for sure. But being able to shadow where you're just, your only job is to learn and be with that director and ask them questions and be respectful, but to get involved has been very, very special. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, shadowing and just getting experience, real, you know, life experience from people who have been in the game for so long is important in, you know, any field. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's one of those things where it seems super inside baseball kind of thing where you, you have to make your inroads and meet all these people in order to do it. But there are ways there are a million programs, especially for people who have been underrepresented. And and I, I think it's important to seek those out as a director because it's really hard, especially, especially now um, to get people who hire directors for TV shows or movies to trust you. Like you're trusted with a lot of people and money and time and for them to just be like yeah sure we'll take a chance on this kid is like you, you have to have them vet you in some way i mean i guess with that being said a final send-off do you have any advice for any upcoming filmmakers especially those maybe in the lgbtq plus community when it comes to you know representation in the industry and just being a filmmaker in general in today's climate yeah do it. <laughs> you know, it sounds really simple, but there are so many people who talk yeah. so much about what they're doing or what they're gonna do. And then you ask like, oh, so where are you on it? And they're like, well, I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, great. But like the, the, the truth is, is like similar to any filmmaker, honestly, you have to put your money where your mouth is. Like I, you know, for holding the take back, it's not like they were produced by any big producer. It was you know, me saving money or withholding, we, we got funded by a, a random foundation at Cornell. Like you have to be really scrappy and make the stuff. If you don't, nobody else is gonna help you make it initially. So sit down, you have more time than ever, write and rewrite and rewrite and then make it. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but get those reps under your belt, like exercise that muscle because nothing's gonna be handed to you and people are gonna say your stuff is too niche or too specific or too gay, or you know, people aren't gonna relate to it. And despite how often that's been disproven, it's still the case. So you just have to keep disproving it by doing it. One other piece of advice that I'd give is something I learned when I was working at this really small production company with these two super smart, very savvy producers. The idea of positive persistence, which is to say, be a nag in a way that's respectful. You know, 
don't give up because people say no, but also don't bang the door down and make people hate you. So when I worked there, we talked a lot about positive persistence and getting things done because, you know, it was an indie production company. And even though they were pretty successful producers, they were still indie, right? So people, they didn't have a deal somewhere. So people could ignore them if they wanted to, but it's about being the person who's not only always on the top of your mind because they're reminding you in a, in a respectful way, but being the one who's the kindest and the best in terms of someone you want to be around and create with, I think is really important. You have to think not only of what your own interests are, but how you make your interests somebody else's interests and doing it in a way that's genuine, right? You're not trying to use people, but just realizing what other people's perspectives might be of you and what you're trying to make and how you can relate to that, I think is something that people can lose when they're, you know, they're just obsessed with their project and just want to get it made, which is totally understandable and relatable, but you have to be positively persistent. Excellent advice. I like that. Do you have anything um, you wanted to add that we didn't ask you or maybe uh, some plugs? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, is I'm planning on releasing the Take Back wide very soon. It's not set in stone yet, but what I would say is to just follow me on Instagram and that's when I'll be announcing it. So if you follow at Jesse D Turk, super simple, it's just my name. That is where announcements about the film will be as well as any future stuff. And yeah, I think I think that's my only plug. I, I you know, I have stuff coming up, but I don't it's not set in stone yet or anything like that. Awesome. Well, thank you again to Jesse for being on the podcast with us. Once again, I'm Madison. I'm Mitch, and I want to thank uh, Jesse for joining us as well. I also want to thank you guys for uh, tuning in. Also, make sure you subscribe to our feed on Spotify and now on Apple Podcasts. Also, follow us on Instagram at Blackbird Film Podcast. You can always check out our festival website at www.blackbirdfilmfestival.com. Also, check out Jesse's Instagram at Jesse D. Turk. And thank you for tuning in. We wouldn't be here without you guys. Yeah, thank you. We'll catch you on the next episode.